This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here. Your guide on the side. Your coach. Your, you know, everybody needs somewhere that they can turn to get the information for life. Usually it's your parents will sit you down on their knee and then teach you about life. But sometimes when you become an adult, your parents give up on you. We won't give up on you. Welcome to the program and we got a great show for you. Today, uh, happy International Day of Peace. This is the day. Mm-hmm. Just give it a chance. Peace means so much more than the absence of war. Today's the day we're going to give it a real chance. Forgive somebody, light a candle in your window. Get over it. Let it go. Drop it. Just not like the woman I read yesterday who lit 19 candles in memory of her, of her boyfriend that never existed and burnt her house down. Don't do that. Oh, really? Yeah. She had a boyfriend that didn't exist. Non-existent boyfriend. She lit 19 candles in his memory. Was she trying to channel him I, I don't to know. come to her? Obviously, she has uh, issues further beyond. Is her husband, is this boyfriend, with. maybe this boyfriend's a, like a pyromaniac. and Maybe. I think he was 19 the and the candles down. were on a birthday cake. So and then she ate the cake. You can light candles for peace. Just be careful. Be careful. Be careful out there, people. No need to burn your whole house down. Today's also a really important day, according to Earth, Wind, and Fire. Do you remember? No. When it was tomorrow, oh. Love was changing Today's the day. The 21st of September. Never listened to Earth, Wind, and Fire. This, then I, someone showed me this song, and I'm like, oh, all right, I like this. Song. I get this. I grew up on Earth, Wind, and Fire, and my sisters. Well, Their long hair just flowing. The elements or the music? The music. You're, of a, you're a man of a certain age, so. Yeah, aren't we all? Some more than others. Well, I think we all have a certain age. <laughs> that was almost rude. Yeah. Anywho, it's miniature golf day, too. Mm. You got to love miniature golf. Do you? That was like one of the first dates everybody went on. Yeah. I was always really bad at it. Were you? Yeah, she was watching. Well, you, yeah, but that then she was like, oh, that was cute. You tried. Mm, never really worked out that way. Hmm. Well, it's never too late. Yeah. Well. Never too late. We've got so much to talk about. Today we'll be speaking with a professor about uh, the polarization of America. We are one polarized country. <laughs> Apparently it's been that way. It's going to probably stay that way. Great. Glad and to know. it's not all that bad. There are some positives to polarization. It creates a lot of predictability. So we have a wonderful uh, interview. Uh, I interviewed him yesterday, so we'll replay it today. No one's heard the interview. Mm. It's just world premiere. World premiere. James E. Campbell will be joining us, Professor Campbell, and his book about uh, polarized America. We'll get to that, of course, plus some incredible stories, some of which you might even want to know. We'll talk about the um, the negative interpretation of Skittles. Skittles, yes. It's, by the way, my favorite treat. Mm. I mean, if you want a sugar rush, great treat. <laughs> and how Donald Trump Jr. may have 
you know. Stepped in it? Stepped in it. Yeah. Gets all of that fun stuff. But first, to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Sadie, what's up? During a rally in North Carolina on Tuesday, Donald Trump made an interesting pitch to African-American voters with whom he's polling terribly. Our African-American communities are absolutely in the worst shape that they've ever been in before. Ever, 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 Trump claimed. The candidate who has polled in the single digits, sometimes as low as 1% with black voters, recently took to simply asking them at rallies, what do you have to lose by voting for Trump? Billionaire healthcare magnate uh, Mike Fernandez, a major Republican donor from Florida, announced Tuesday that he will donate over $2 million to Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. I specifically call on all Latinos to reject a man who encourages violence against you. Fernandez, a Cuban-American, wrote of the Republican nominee Donald Trump in an email Tuesday that announced his donation. Donald Trump has reportedly used money from his charitable foundation to help himself, as detailed in an in-depth report from the Washington Post published Tuesday. The investigation revealed the Republican presidential candidate has spent an estimated $258,000 from the Donald J. Trump Foundation to settle lawsuits involving his for-profit businesses, including one of his golf courses in New York and his clubs in Palm Beach, Florida. England police... Uh, oh, sorry. This is the last story. Here we go. Mm. Um You'll appreciate this. Um, okay. I mean, sometimes we talked about pets the other day. Yeah. Sometimes you just lose something you really love in a relationship, and sometimes that's your pet. Oh. Um, so England police have released a series of bizarre calls to their non-emergency 101 phone line, including a man who complained his ex-girlfriend was overfeeding their hamster. <laughs> the man contacted the police to report that his ex-girlfriend would not return the hamster following their breakup and complained the pet had become too fat. She's trying to kill him. Yeah. Um, he said, I don't want to cause any trouble whatsoever. She'll not give it back because she says, I look be- after it better than you, but it's ended up looking like a fat little pig. Oh. It can't fit in his wheel anymore. Yeah. <laughs> he also, those little, yeah. The, the ball he you needs a bigger wheel, yeah. So he cited the hamster's short lifespan to the police and pleaded with them to assist in the return of his beloved pet. You've got to do something for the hamster. Oh, man. Wow, Sadie. Well, at What's least happening? he called the non-emergency number. Well, that was good. Yeah. They call it 999 <laughs> instead of 911. Yeah, that's good. 999. Thank you, Sadie. You know, you got to do something for these uh, animals. I have clients that have settlements about their dog, you know, visitation rights. Yeah. But I've never necessarily done a feeding schedule for a hamster as a mediator. The Wonder Harvey, Hamster. Harvey, Harvey, this is some great marching music. These you need to get your hamster moving. Right. Then you put him in the little hamster ball hey, and Harvey. get him on his way. That's great. That was wonderful. Leave it to Jeff to find Just the very fly. targeted hamster <laughs> music. Or to know about it. I know a hamster song. <laughs> <laughs> I was just using it on my hamster yesterday. So it's it's going crazy. They've they've ruined Skittles for me. Apparently. Some people were complaining because they'd go to Twitter yesterday and they knew Skittles was trending. And they're like, ooh, Skittles. Ooh, me like. And then it was Skittles and Trump. And they're like, oh, man. Okay, so Donald Jr. Donald Jr. made a comment comparing Syrian refugees to a package of Skittles. He put out a post that said, this image says it all. Let's end the politically incorrect agenda that doesn't... Put America first. He tweeted with a graphic that said, if you had a bowl of Skittles and I told you just three would kill you, would you take a handful? That's our Syrian refugee problem. 
Okay, and that he many giving him the benefit of the doubt would say he's just trying to create a metaphor, share a metaphor of we're allowing in a bowl full of d- differing colored juicy yum yums. Okay. <laughs> Put it in my own words. But three in the bowl could be poisonous. Could be. Green apple will kill you. Yep. You don't like the green apple. No. It's the second time you've brought that up. No. So, so then the problem is if three could kill you, would you risk it? Would you risk the bowl, the whole bowl of Skittles? Okay. So what's the problem with that? I mean, Well, first off, Mike Pence, clip two, if you will. He had this. It's remarkable to me to see the level of outrage about a metaphor used by Don Jr. when Hillary Clinton's calling for a 550% increase in the Syrian refugee program. All the while, our FBI and public safety officials tell us that we can't know for sure who those people are coming into the... Hmm. Right. Yeah, you can't know for sure. Because all their records have been lost. The problem people had was with the way it was presented in that message. You had a small amount of, of Skittles... And, try, and trying to make I, – I, I, it wasn't representative of what's actually happening when it comes to the people and yeah. the, the actual problem that's happening The numbers weren't right, right? So like a bowl full of Skittles might be hundreds of Skittles. So several news agencies went after this yesterday yeah. to try to kind of explain. It says, the image posted by Trump, the Trump picture, a small bowl containing perhaps 100 Skittles, assuming that three of the said Skittles could kill you, eating a handful from this tiny bowl would indeed be risky. The thing is, though, the image drastically oversells the risk posed by the Skittles or refugees. Right. It says, a report released last week by the Cato Institute measured the risk to Americans posed by refugees. The report found that Americans' chances of being killed by a refugee in a terrorist attack in any given year are 1 in 3.64 billion. Yeah, different than 1, than 3 in 200 Uh Skittles. Right. Right. It says America's murder rate is at 4.5 per 100,000. More likely to die being murdered by probably someone in your family. Which is about 163,000 times higher right. than okay. a refugee. So where's your fear at? Where's your yeah. concern at? Where, yeah. It says the Washington Post, uh, Philip Bump, he's a reporter, points out, adhering to Trump's analogy, the bowl with three deadly Skittles or refugees in it would need to contain 10.93 billion Skittles. Wow. Well, not 200. 10 billion. Yeah. But he calculated this to be the equivalent of 1.5 Olympic-sized swimming pools full of candy. This would equate to a bowl of Skittles roughly 246 feet long, 130 feet high, and 9 feet deep. That's a big pool. Big pool. Goes on to say Wrigley, produce a company that makes Skittles, produces 200 million Skittles a day. Wow. It would take them 54 days to produce the number of Skittles necessary to fill the bowl. Only three of those Skittles would be poisonous. So if that were the case, I'd risk it. You know, would be the idea. That's a. I mean, it's a pretty good risk. And and then they put a note at the bottom. It says several readers have argued that Trump Jr.'s tweet solely referred to Syrian refugees. So in that case, since October of 2015, yeah. the United States has admitted roughly 8,000 Syrian refugees. Not one has committed an act of terrorism to date, which right. would be zero poisonous skittles. Yeah. So, I think Donald Trump Jr. has learned that he just needs to shut his flapper. Because you can't even use a metaphor. And some are mad about the metaphor because these are humans, not Skittles. Now, I found this this morning, which was interesting. Donald Trump Jr.'s tweet comparing Syrian refugees to Skittles has deep roots. The concept dates back to at least 1938 and a children's book 
called Der Glipsfist. It's German. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. how to With, say it, but it translates to the toadstool. Okay. Okay. In which a mother explains to her son that it only takes one Jew to destroy an entire people. Uh, the book's author, yeah. Julius Stretcher, also published a newspaper that Adolf Hitler loved. And uh, the newspaper published anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, anti-communist, anti-capitalist propaganda. So pretty much everyone. Hmm. 1933, soon after Hitler took power, he used his newspaper to call for the extermination of Jews. This man, the, the publisher of the paper, was then, after the war, he was tried hmm. at Nuremberg and hung for this newspaper he yeah. created that helped to get people riled up to uh, lead to the do we, murder Do of we really Jews. think Donald Trump Jr.'s Skittle metaphor has any connection to that history? No. He just probably, probably thought of a been. metaphor. <laughs> to, but the, the problem is, is you're trying to exclude somebody using fear. Yes. And then all of a sudden, boy, that makes it even – that's so ominous that one Jew could destroy an entire population, just one toadstool thing. So the point is using yeah. this metaphor to isolate a yeah. group of people and use fear to, to say, look, we can, only you know, one or two could be the right. problem. and. It's really, it's really a bad way of going about it when there is a concern. Yeah. There is a problem in vetting refugees coming into the country. Scaring people this no. way isn't responsible. Well, and especially on the heels of a stabbing from in uh, Minneapolis from a, a member of the Somali community there. There's already these racial overtones on top of the bombing in, um, in New York and New Jersey – that that's huge. But meanwhile, we're not even talking about the innocent shooting of a man in Tulsa. Was it Tulsa? Um, and then there was uh, and then the, the North the, Carolina the there was a shooting also. Carolina. Exactly. And so, holy cow, don't make it about the refugees. Yeah. And when don't ever equate it to Skittles. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Wrigley mm. Company came out and said, Skittles are candy, not people. I mean, I like, I really do like, because I'm visual, I like the metaphor because, not that metaphor, but I like the pool metaphor, mm-hmm. that it's really pretty safe. Three in a pool of 10 billion Skittles. 10 billion Skittles. <laughs> pretty good odds. Just compare it to wealth. You know, there are just never enough Skittles. It's a great point. You could always have more refugees. Which would dilute the danger pool. It would. That's the key. We need education. And yet, you know what? It wouldn't matter what. Even if it was a perfect metaphor, it's going to get shredded. Sure. There's always going to be somebody that finds something. Shredded. But that was interesting that they found a children's book from Nazi Germany that yeah. had the, the, kind of the same idea. Remember that no thoughts on this earth are really new. No. We're just rehashing them. And the, the darndest thing is that we've got to... We now have Google, so we can go back and rehash all of history and really blow up every good metaphor. If that were the case, we could probably go through the Bible and mm. shred it. Right. <laughs> and I bet you so much of it would have racial and uh, things even Adolf Hitler loved, right? Can't win. My wife and I are currently watching some comedy TV shows from the 80s. Why? Be, they're kind of interesting, kind of fun, but there's so much in those shows that would never air today. I know. I We're lived. watching like, whoa, we can't say that. I grew up on those shows. <laughs> Alf? Alf? Mr. Well, Belvedere? I, actually, I saw, a, I saw a current show that had an Alf cameo in it. He just sort of popped up in the show. Did he like, eat Wah. a cat? No, but he ran over a cop. That was odd. That seems not appropriate. Yeah, yeah. 
What do you want? Do you want to give us the name of the shows you're watching? It's called Mr. Robot. Oh boy, <laughs> that's one I didn't even see. I used to see them all. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Wow. Okay. We got a lot to cover today. Uh, we're going to get into this polarization of America. That's a pretty good example. Like you can't even give a Skittles example without the entire America becoming polarized on yep. it. And you can pick your sides. But uh, coming up will be an interview with Dr. James E. Campbell. He's uh, author of the book Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America. He's going to hopefully help us make sense of it all. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, healthy debate and good public discourse is healthy for a strong representative government, right? But when debates go from this idea versus that idea to us versus you, we might be battling a problem of polarization. Here to talk to us about the polarized America is Dr. James Campbell, the author of the book Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm glad you invited me. Thank you. This is we, – we see it all through the political arena. Um, I guess it's one thing to have a complete uh, – I mean an, an opposite position from everybody. But it, it almost seems like we, we're we not just divided. We really don't like each other. It's okay. it's almost like I just don't like your view or you. Is that what you mean by polarized America? or Or what is this polarization? Well, there's always conflict in American politics. There always has been. And what, what's dis- distinctive about polarization is that all of the different conflicts over different issues and different uh, matters uh, kind of collapses into a single dimension. So people who are with you on one issue are also likely to be with you on all the other issues. People uh, who oppose you on one are, are likely to oppose you on others. And that sets up, uh, again, this kind of single ideological spectrum uh, where it's us versus them. Uh, when things are more pluralistic, when, when people are on different sides and different issues, that tends to soften the conflict. It's not as intense because people are maybe your allies one day and your opponents the next. Here, it's a more permanent um, uh, opposition. This permanent intensifies conflict. And it's this permanency is... Um, it, it's been around a long time. I think don't hasn't it? We we attribute it to just kind of lately, but this has a history that's um, that goes back. Yes, I mean, it, 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 at different points in our history, it has been more or less intense. You know, during the 1940s and 50s and early 60s, we were relatively uh, unpolarized. Um, we became more polarized in the in the late 60s and in the 70s and have grown more so since. I mean, it's important to, to note that uh, polarization is not an either-or, kind of a flip-of-the-switch kind of, of thing. It's a, it's a matter of degree. Uh, we've been pretty well polarized since the late 60s, and it's even grown more so when the parties uh, more clearly represented polarization and beginning in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and since. What are the topics that polarize us the most? Well, the central organizing um, um, feature of, of polarization is the role of government. Mm. And in, in every issue that you can think of, 
um, liberals and conservatives disagree over how active or aggressive or expansive or intrusive uh, government ought to be uh, on 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 that issue, or whether government should be involved at all on the issue. So government is the uh, is the thread that uh, ties all these issues together. <laughs> and then I guess it's to what degree the government should be involved. In fact, in your uh, Los Angeles, you wrote a, an article for the L.A. Times, gun control. Yeah, so I guess that's government involvement in guns, in abortion, in fracking, in climate change, immigration, school vouchers, health care. And now you, you even say which bathroom we can use is now a federal case. Right. You know, it's, uh, it, people wouldn't think that uh, – you know, 30 years ago, it'd be an ideological issue. The weather or climate would be an ideological issue, much less, as you say, uh, I wrote about in the L.A. Times piece, much less uh, bathrooms. Right. So it's, it's government is really, as government has, has grown and has become uh, inserted itself in more issues, or people wanted inserted, some people wanted inserted in more issues, that also has fueled polarization. There's just more or logs on the fire, if you will. Is is so much of this kind of the party you belong to, or does it does it become topical in that, because a lot of these you do see are very just clearly delineated between parties, um, but it, it seems like we ought to be more going by issue than party. Well, it's all lined up now. That's what polarization does. Uh, the issues, people, the us versus them on any particular issue, is the same as the us versus them on another issue, same as uh, us versus them on on party identification and on ideology. So there really is a, a, a greater simplicity to American politics than there used to be, and that creates the greater intensity. You know, people who are are Democrats are much more likely to be liberals than they used to be. Hmm. But Republicans are much more likely to be conservatives than they used to be, and that, you know. Sort of always being on one side, you're, you know, the, your allies are always the same, your opponents are always the same. That really sets up this this tension in American politics. And um, I, I, it feels like, even though we don't like the tension, um, it feels like the political class does. Well, I think, you know, we don't like it. I mean, it's sort of a fact. I mean, it's almost whether we like it or not, that's the way... Things have sorted out, and they've sorted out that way for a reason. It's people's approach to government, and I, you know, I think the the uh, elites uh, are simply now trying to represent those views. I don't think they caused it. Hmm. In fact, um, if anything, uh, well, I mean, if you, you strip away and look through history uh, more broadly, the public became more polarized first, and the parties came, were kind of dragged along later. Uh, the parties in the 1970s and early 80s were still very ideologically heterogeneous parties. You had, you know, plenty of uh, of, of liberal Republicans still then, and, and conservative Democrats. And now they better reflect the underlying uh, views of of the public. Now, everybody wants their own views and dis and dislikes the other views, and that sets up. You know, we don't like polarization overall. We want our own way. Right. Uh, but that's the, that's because the country is about you know split. Uh, a little more conservative than it is liberal, but you know we have that uh, big division. There's still a good good group of of people, a, a minority of people in the middle, and that or, offer kind of a buffer in this. But uh, you know we're we've chosen up sides more than uh, in the past. 
Hmm. And um, and I guess too, you know, some would claim, you know, those that want more government, the more government that takes over, the more they they create kind of a permanent constituency. So it almost, you know, the the legislations that are passed, it ends up basically validating your own constituency and keeps this whole polarization play happening. Right. I mean, yeah, on every issue, there there's a constituency to keep government role, right. government's role at, at, at a minimum, and there's another constituency that wants it uh, enhanced and expanded. Is this is this so, something yeah. that you learn your way out of, like? Um, I mean, one of the points I know you've made is in some of the research is about that how uninformed the the voters are politically, right? And so it, it almost just keeps us ignorantly arguing um, almost more talking points than real facts. Well, um, you could look at it that, that way, but I, in, in some ways, polarization makes um, uh, it doesn't. It requires less. Uh, a less informed uh, electorate, it, you know, things are simplified. Yeah. Uh, and so it's kind of easy to know uh, which side you generally agree on, on on issues. I think that this is sort of ingrained in our in the public at this point. And I think for things to change, I mean, you, know, although, you know, I don't want to overstate it. There's still about 40 percent or 44 percent of, of Americans count themselves as moderates. Or they don't know their ideological inclination. So there's a big, you know, center that's still there. It's been shrinking, but it's still substantial. Um, I think what 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 uh, the end of polarization would would amount to some experiences that would cause uh, conservatives to become more moderate, or liberals to become more moderate, or you know, to, to, to actually persuade them. Uh, that's unlikely to happen anytime soon. Hmm. You know, ideological views are, um, are are pretty well grounded. Now, you say this started in the '60s. Uh, do we, what? What's the history, be kind of behind the the hyper polarized culture we live in? How did it get? Was there something? Is it is it having a common enemy that makes us less polarized? And you know, when we lost, when the Cold War started to work its way out, we, we became, we needed an enemy, and the enemy became each other, ourselves? Well, I, to, to some extent that's true. I, I think what it, what it was, the, the anomaly here, the unusual situation, was uh, the generation um, that came of political age in the 1930s and 40s and early 50s. Those, those people, uh, that, those cohorts of, of voters, of Americans, uh, they experienced the Great Depression and World War II and Korea and uh, the Cold War, and those were kind of galvanizing events. So they kind of set political differences in perspective. Mm. You know, if, if you were serving in the, in the Army with people who disagreed with you, well, you had the Army service that kind of brought you together. So those were events that were unifying, that wor- worked against polarization. And in fact... The, the, the social theorists writing in the in the late fifties and, and early early nineteen sixties were actually talking about the end of ideology, you know, which which and and political scientists were studying. Well, why can't we have more responsible ideological parties? The parties are not you know you know uh, doing enough to clearly delineate the differences out there. So now 
now we 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 see ourselves as having just the opposite problems. Maybe maybe too much ideology and hmm. and parties emphasizing ideology too much. So things change um, generationally. Um, on top of that, you had uh, a holdover really from the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, the fact that there was no viable Republican Party in Southern states uh, meant kind of slowed up uh, the process of polarization um, until they could establish uh, some Republican parties to reflect the conservative views of, of many white Southerners. Hmm. So it's it, I guess that's interesting. There, there have been shifts and there will, I guess you could assume, be some shift in the polarization right. depending on conditions. Exactly. Um, but what, what we saw were unusual conditions in the earlier period, unusually unifying conditions for those generations of the, of the 30s and 40s and early 50s, uh, and then an unusual situation in the parties where the parties were not clearly the home of one ideological viewpoint, you know, that they were more, they were more of a mix. Mm. Uh, though both of those were kind of histo- historical anomalies. I mean, I think what we have now is a more natural uh, situation where the parties reflect, you know, the, the Democratic Party is the home for liberals. The Republican Party is the home for conservatives. And, uh, you know, that seems to, you know, make more sense uh, than uh, than having kind of a grab bag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Party. Interesting, interesting stuff. We're speaking with Dr. James E. Campbell, uh, the author of the book Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America. We'll continue the discussion in just a minute and find out, uh, you know, what do you do with this and uh, what does the future look like? Stick with us. Polarization of America. Hopefully uh, help you see the good as well. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. James E. Campbell. He is the UB Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University uh, at Buffalo State, um, or Buffalo State University of New York. He's also the author of many books. Uh, one of the books we're discussing today is the book called Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America, where he helps us understand What's happening to this uh, this country? We see so much polarization. We also, I think, wonder, is this really who we are and is this good for us? Dr. Campbell, again, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Is, it, is this robust, polarized uh, condition that we find ourselves in, is it healthy? Is it, does it have a productive impact? Well, um like most things, uh, there's a positive and a negative uh, side to polarization. The positive side is that uh, it clarifies choices for people. As uh, yeah. discussed, most Americans don't have a great uh, deal of, of uh, great depth of, of information about politics. This makes uh, elections somewhat uh, simpler and um, more clear-cut, more, less difficult for, for voters. That's, that's to the good. It also stimulates turnout. Uh, there's more at stake in elections uh, when um, the parties clearly stand at more uh, more distinct uh, um, positions from each other. That's to, 
to the good. The, the bad news, and well, and also I should say that people feel more are better represented by a party uh, hmm. when it's polarized. You know, liberals feel that there's they have a home. Somebody is is an advocacy for their point of view, and conservatives likewise see that in the Republican Party. The downside is that it makes governing much more difficult. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, you know, it, it leads uh, or increases the prospects for uh, gridlock and more partisan bickering, uh, which people don't like, uh, understandably don't like. Uh, so, and that's the, that's, that's the downside. It may, and it may sometimes freeze us from uh, tackling issues that we should because we can't develop that kind of consensus that's necessary in our in our system. You called it, um, and, and I've heard it many times too, but polarization fatigue. There's a lot of people that are just exhausted by these candidates right now. And and the whole process, it, it, and it seems like it's actually turning people off. We had a professor on the other day talking about how it actually might be turning millennials off of politics in general. Right. Well, a lot of people, particularly those um, in the middle of the political spectrum um, find the um, partisan and ideological arguments um, distasteful, unnecessary, and uh, and therefore they avoid them. Uh, people at either end of the spectrum, I think, are invigorated by it. You, know, you've, you have somebody who's more clearly you know, defending your point of view, and you think the other side is awful. Hmm. So that can, that can get uh, people uh, more engaged. So it has different effects in different parts of the electorate. Overall, though, Americans have always been ambivalent about politics and don't... Um, have they? So, yeah. Well, there's one reason why, you know, Congress as an institution is always seen in the, uh, as, as in the least favorable terms compared to the presidency and the, and the courts, because that in Congress, that's where you see political conflict most clearly on display. So people are, 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 you know, are uneasy about that. Well, and now we see money being made. We see the media empires being created by the polarization. You know, it keeps, it keeps a lot of the, the media companies alive at a time when they may not have survived otherwise. Right. Well, there, there, you know, that's part of representing, I think, uh, uh, different, uh, different perspectives out there. And, um, and they they have more, you know, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC or any other outlet, uh, they they tend to um, to have a constituency much like the parties do, and they're representing those constituencies. So, I mean, I don't I don't think it's that that the that the political media is creating the polarization, but it's as you suggest it's making hay from it, <laughs> and. Uh, and it's fueling it, you know. It's sort of, they're sort of cheerleaders. I, I think of them as kind of the middlemen, kind of the agitators. But you know, the 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 the, the audience for that is already out there. Oh. And I, I guess where does it come from? Then is it is it government created? Is it leadership created by a vacuum of leaders? Is it is it created in our homes? Where does the polarization begin? Well, I think it begins with um, experience. To some extent, it's socialization. Um, you know that uh, you know, as with party identification, it's more uh, likely to uh, you know conservatives are more likely to come from um, homes where the parents express more conservative viewpoints, and, and the same on the liberal side. 
in addition to that, it's experience. Uh, you know, as you follow issues, even if you don't follow them very closely, as you follow the news, you know, as it as it percolates along through the years, you're going to to see, oh, there the liberals go again, or there the conservatives go again, and that kind of reinforces uh, your uh, your predispositions. Mm. And then. Um and then the energy behind it, and then I can imagine a lot of people that feel like they've lost power. You know, if you if you buy if you're into the polarization, and then the president um, Obama's been leading for eight years. You see everything through that lens, and you can hardly wait to get a Republican in there. Uh, it really is a uh, it's a very charged chemically situation. Oh, exactly, and I think. What what we see, what we're seeing, particularly in this election, is uh, the uh, some of the frustration, particularly among conservatives, uh, over the years that they they believe that their party uh, has not been well representing them in government. That government overall has, has not been reflecting their uh, their views, and and that they haven't been on the winning side enough, uh, and uh, and that creates anger and i think you know donald trump has come along and said well you know you guys have been losing a lot i'm gonna i'm gonna make you win mm. and that's that's the sort of the key part of his uh, of his message for a long time i didn't even you know i thought his, his his responses were quite superficial in this but in in fact i think they were he was hitting on what uh, was of greatest concern to conservatives and that is you know getting back um uh to a position of, of winning on some pol- public policy disputes. Is, <laughs> is this polarization um, – c- can, can you see that a leader could step in and be a, a, a unifier that could take the differences and make it into something different? I think that's a possibility. Um, I mean, it would take a very, very gifted uh, politician, I think. But there are there are lots of things that all Americans, as polarized as we are, there are a lot of things that we all agree about. You know, peace and prosperity. You know, if, if um, you know, we all want good schools, clean air. You know, there's a whole host of of, of things that that uh, we just want results on. And we want the same results, safe streets, and end of terrorism, you know, all of those things. And if, if somebody could come along, you know, and, and deliver on uh, those kinds of, of, of issues, those what we call valence issues or things that, that are, are common uh, still in American politics, commonly desired in American politics, then I think um, they could unify but it's going to take to do so. They will have they would have to turn their back a little bit on the agenda of the base of their party. Hmm. Um, but I think uh, you know that it still could be done. Have you seen that? I mean, who you kind of know who the partisans are. Um, I mean, it just seems like there's been a lot of rancor between um, Harry. Smith and uh, is that his name Harry uh, Harry Smith? That seems weird. Um, Nancy Pelosi th- from Mitch McConnell. There's been a lot of tension there uh, with a lot of the legislation. It, can you see a leader from either party that's able to kind of cross the aisle and and talk to both sides? 
Um, not at this point, no. Yeah. Um, I don't. And, and, and there is some reason for this, too. Uh, the parties now depend a lot more for their votes. It's not, you know, not talking campaign contributions at this point, but that would even add to this. They, they depend a lot more on, uh, on, for, for their votes from their ideological bases than they used to. Hmm. So they, they really can't um, turn their back on that. So in a way, uh, the, the kind of leader that you're uh, hope, you know, suggesting, that is somebody, a unifier, would have to somehow figure out how to satisfy their base enough so that they're not undercut, and then reach out on these these broader uh, big issues. I think you know Barack Obama had that opportunity. I think yeah, he was first elected. If he had gotten the economy up and running, if he had focused more on the economy and perhaps less on uh, the health care issue uh, initially, I think uh, you know if we were growing at four percent rather than two percent, I think um, you know he might have been the uh, unifier that. Uh, he said he wanted. Hmm. And I guess, too, if there's this supposed middle independent uh, voter, it'd be powerful to see somebody that could really pull those people in. Um, yeah, it would be. Uh, and and in, in the general election, you still have to, you know, even as, as big as, and as strong as the bases are in each party, you still have to win your share of uh, those uh, centrist hmm. uh, voters out there. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it's difficult to, to do. And then, yeah, and then it's interesting that you brought up Obama because he did. I mean, I remember thinking, okay, this is not only historic as a leader, but he, he talks about change and he talks about, you know, the whole country. Let's see it. That would be fantastic. And then th- then it seemed to get really ugly and polarized. And right. it's not – I mean, I don't even know if it's just him. It's just you do have to play to your constituencies so much that you can't – maybe you can't cross the aisle very easily. I think what you have to do is, is uh, for a president of that uh, to be a true unifier, uh, you have to uh, take on those big unifying – those valence issues that I was talking about. Mm. You know, peace and prosperity, safety, uh, all those things that everybody wants. You have to take those on early uh, when your your base is already with you and, um, you know, uh, and you have some goodwill to, to move uh, beyond that. How do you – oh, go ahead. Too, that, you know, the, the big, big part of the problem of sort of the incivility in American politics, all the rancor that we we're talking about. Yeah. Um, it's been associated with polarization, but – and, and it is tied to polarization, but it's not just because people are taking different perspectives at you know, either end of the liberal conservative um, spectrum. It's really because they're taking those perspectives with kind of what we political scientists have called an amateurish uh, view about politics. That is a very kind of a hardline purist view. Hmm. It's my way or the highway. Uncompromised compromise is, a, is a dirty word kind of perspective. And we should, over time, see a, a drawback from taking that kind of perspective, kind of a hard-line perspective, because that's a perspective that, over time, should lead you, uh, either party or either side of the spectrum, to lose more political battles than it should, because you're not, you're not casting, you're not, 
and we've seen it in this election where people, you know, you have to be exactly a Ted Cruz guy or mm-hmm. exactly, uh, you know, somebody else or Bernie Sanders. Any deviation from that, uh, you're, you're called into question. You don't build a, a, a big coalition necessary to get policies uh, passed taking that perspective. You need a big tent perspective to win in American politics. That is bringing in people who don't agree with you 100% of the time. Maybe they agree with you 70% of the time. That's still better have them on your side. Right. Having a coalition, get 70% of what you want, then get nothing. Interesting. So, yeah, the kind of the naivete that, no, you got to go for your, your smaller portion and that you're going to be able to survive. Right. And, and if, 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 it, if people um, learn that, you know, they can't, you know, it's uh, Mick Jagger and uh, Keith Richards said, you can't always get what you want, right? Right. And, 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 and that's, that applies to politics. You know, you, in a country as diverse as we are, as polarized as we are, that, that requires more than a bare majority to get policies passed, you need to be inclusive. You need to bring people in, and uh, and the purest view uh, doesn't really acknowledge the importance of doing that. Hmm. Yeah, that's that really that does make sense, and um, yeah, it takes a, a really it takes somebody that can do some serious politicking to be able to make it through all of this. Well, Doctor Campbell, we appreciate you and uh, your insights into the polarized America that we're all living in. Again, we recommend everybody go check out the book, Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America by Dr. James E. Campbell. Interesting insights, folks. There is a, uh, there's a road uh, that we're all on, the divisive one. We need somebody that can maybe play the Big Ten perspective, see how everybody's issues might actually uh, be working together. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, interesting insight about uh, the polarization. It's just, it is what it is, and it apparently doesn't look like it's going to change, which probably turns people off. They're polarized. They're sick of it. They're tired. They're not going to vote. Right. Not going to do it. It, it's it's a hassle. You're driving home from work. Now you have to go to the elementary, the library, the city yeah. hall, and there's a line. And-, and if you don't really love either of the candidates, why would you kill yourself to go vote? Well, how about because you love your democracy? But and then while you're in there, don't take a picture. Right. There's a federal court that is is uh, deciding if taking a photo of your ballot is free speech or, or coercion. When a group of judges from the first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston will evaluate a New Hampshire ban on ballot selfies. The ballot secrecy law dates back to an era when it was more common to try and buy votes. Since at least 1979, it has been illegal for New Hampshire uh, voters to show his or her ballot to anyone else as a means of confirming who or who or he or she voted for. So they're worried that you're going to get some money if you go in, take a picture of your ballot and say, see, I voted for so-and-so and they yeah. give you 20 bucks. Which, of course, I don't believe there's any precedent of that actually happening. Right. But again, we're worrying about something that I guess could happen. We're back to the 10 billion Skittles in a pool and three of them are poisonous and we're going to (laughs) worry about it. Isn't it more just showing, hey, kids, look, mom and dad voted. 
Yeah, but even doing that, it, so the question is, is it free speech or are you opening the door for people to pay you uh-huh. for your, your vote? So that's yeah. something that's going to be okay. decided. Another uh, a note, in 2012, only about 58% of eligible voters in the U.S. cast a ballot. A rate the New York Times says is generally on par with uh, with other United States presidential elections in the modern era. Still, voter turnout in the U.S. is lower than in Canada, Mexico, Australia, most of Europe, including the U.K., in keeping uh, four in ten Americans from voting. As so, basically, four in ten adults don't vote in a presidential elections. However, nine out of ten assume they have a right to say something. Well, they do, yeah. but they don't want to vote. Now, the question is: is not voting? Your vote is that? Are you? Yeah, you is it basically a protest vote because you feel like the system is corrupt or it's messed corrupt, up to the point messed, where it's you cares? don't want to deal with it? it? Says education also increases political knowledge, but other groups like Hispanics face language barriers or a weaker connection to the political process as a whole. Plus, if we wanted it to, if it was about getting everyone to vote, I'll bet you some of these parties don't want everyone to vote. It's better if some just aren't interested to vote. Keep the numbers down. Keep yeah. the winds up. I have uh, I can't I don't know if it did, who who it benefits but one of the parties it benefits if there's a yeah. lower turnout. Oh yeah, oh yeah. All right, well, okay, it's your choice, folks. Vote, do it, just do it. Get involved, get your kids involved, make it a party, have dinner after. That's it. Hour number one. It's in the can. We'll take a break. Come back. More insight. Help you live longer, love stronger on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number two of the program. This is the program where we give you the ideas, the information, the tools you need to live healthier lives. It's not like you know everything, so... We try to bring in uh, the experts who can give us an in-depth look at the information you need to uh, to know. Today we will be talking about charitable giving and one of the best ways to uh, to evaluate it. We hear a lot of talk with Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and their charities, their foundations, how much money everybody's giving to the world to change the world. Is that the best way to measure a charity is by how much you actually end up giving? Is it just a financial tally, or are there other ways to give? We'll be speaking with an expert in charitable giving and can walk us through some some pretty, I think, uh, powerful insights in how each of us can give more and back to the community. Dr. Richard Gunderman will be joining us on why money is an impoverished metric of generosity. Hmm. We'll get to that, plus uh, a lot of uh, interesting things going on today, including the launch of a brand new uh, sports program here on Brigham Young University or BYU Radio. We need more sports. We need more sports because there's more to life than just football, for example. I mean, I don't want to downplay football. Especially when they're not winning. Especially when BYU's struggling and apparently the NFL ratings are dropping. They're plummeting. People aren't as into uh, the football football this year. So we've got a new uh, sport. I've been talking about it for years. I think it's going to be huge. We'll uh, be announcing that in a few moments. It's also International P 
Peace Day, International Day of Peace. This is uh, an important day. Uh Uh-oh, Sadie's dancing in the fishbowl. Peace means so much more than an absence of war. What does it mean? It means it's time to bring back peace and harmony on Earth, and today's the day we begin that. With EDM music? What are we doing? Mm-hmm. This is Peace and Love Incorporated. So okay. who who would know better than Peace and Love Incorporated from Great Information point. Society? They somehow incorporated peace. Today is the day you can maybe go apologize to somebody you have a conflict with, Matt. offer a peace offering. Matt, sorry. You're, you're good. Thanks. Appreciate it. I forgive you for everything. Light a candle today. Reflect, forgive, find some way to, to create tranquility on earth. I think I, I think I bring tranquility with me. I project tranquility. No? Not so sure about that. All right, well. Was that a vocal fry I just did? A form of. Mm. Yes, I do. Mm. It's a remix. The 21st night of September, Earth, Wind, and Fire right here. So what's going to happen tonight? You'll find out. This is... uh, That's a different song. This is the day, the 21st night of September. Something's going down tonight. Ah, this brings back such great memories. The 70s were a weird time. Yeah. A little odd, a little platform shoey. Mm-hmm. Lots of long, straight hair. Yeah. My sisters used to hold me down and then brush their long hair over my face. Wow. Tortures really become more advanced in yeah. our age. <laughs> to this day, I prefer bald women. All right. Don't know why. Just the, a little Is insight. your wife aware of this? She does, she's not... Yeah, no. Yeah, she knows. Not participating in the... She's the, been in the sessions with me. Oh, okay. Does she just keep saying no? Yeah, she just keeps growing her I'm hair. I'm not out. shaving my head. Oh, it's so hard. We'll get to that. Plus, uh, big news. Domino's Pizza is now launching drones uh, to deliver pizza. We'll talk about that. See, this drone food it's delivery. everywhere. I think it's amazing. I think it's overrated. Why? Because you could have it do delivered. Want, What's the some, difference? Do you want some person show up, in a car to show up to your house? Well, I'd rather have that than somebody, you know, shred my face when the pizza drone tips over. Well, you we, just wait till they drop it in your driveway. You don't have to tip a drone. No. Oh, yeah. Wait till the drone association comes out. Drones are people, too. <laughs> Wait till Veruca Snively has a comment. If she loves bats and, and, cockroaches, and cockroaches, she's going to be pro-drone. You know it. Some people don't even know who Veruca is. I'm sure you'll hear from her. But first, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? At least 12 police officers were injured in Charlotte on Tuesday night as protests against a fatal police shooting turned violent. The injuries came after hundreds of demonstrators surrounded police who were working at the scene of Tuesday's shooting at an apartment complex in Charlotte's University City neighborhood. Hours earlier, police fatally shot 42-year-old Keith Scott, a black man whose family said he was unarmed and disabled and possibly mistaken for a suspect that officers were pursuing. Riot police called out the called out as the crowd grew and multiple reports of water bottles thrown at police and threats to attack them. 
A U-2 Dragon Lady spy plane crashed near the Sutter Buttes in California on Tuesday, killing at least one of the pilots. According to the Beale Air Force Base, a second pilot was injured, but his condition is unknown at this time. The crash happened shortly after it took off at 9 a.m. local time. Initially, the Air Force and the Beale Air Force Base said that the two pilots had ejected the plane. Investigators found a parachute near the scene of the crash. Suspected NYC bomber Ahmed Khan-Rahami's father reportedly told New Jersey police in 2014 that he believed his son was a terrorist after Rahami was accused of stabbing his brother during a domestic dispute. Senior law enforcement officials told reporters that, that a review by federal agents followed Rahami's father's tip. When Rahami was arrested on Monday after a shootout with cops in New Jersey, he was also allegedly carrying a notebook with writing about killing the unbeliever. It wasn't clear if the FBI ever interviewed Rahami directly about terrorism allegations. And finally, authorities removed a plug providing power to a Michigan man who has been living in a large wooden sphere as part of an art project. Lauren Nagy of Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio, planned to live in an eight-foot spherical microhome on the streets of Michigan until October 8 as part of an artistic statement. The sphere is equipped with Wi-Fi, electricity, and a front row view of downtown Grand Rapids. Uh, He calls it EMO, which is home spelled backwards, representing uh, a backward system of vacant vacant homes and homeless people. Najee said he was surprised the cops pulled the plug on his little home. (laughs) They pulled the plug. They pulled the plug. That's all it took. Did he go down the drain? Yeah, he he actually said he was really surprised and he was very sad because he was obviously trying to make a, a statement. Uh, they only cut it like, you know, two weeks short, but at least he got a little bit of a chance. I think it's the name Emo. Emo. It's just home spelled backwards. Yeah. Emo. Wow. Thanks, Sadie. You can't even, you can't even, you know, take a position and create a little home space on the streets anymore. What's going on with this world? So hard. Apparently, Jimmy Kimmel is uh, he's he's messing with people. Yes, he gets on the he goes on the street, puts a microphone in people's faces, and then he, he tells they, them they, Donald Trump. What does he call it? Fake news, not the news, something like that. But he goes out, tells them an erroneous story, and then has them just react to it because people want to act like they know what's happening. Like they're informed, even though this is completely false. The story is that Donald Trump released his tax returns. So, as you know, Donald Trump releases tax returns today. Was it legitimate for Donald Trump to write off all those marriages over the years as, quote, entertainment? <laughs> wow, good, good question. It was. It was entertaining. I mean, to him, it's a tax write-off. Again, we're going back to your IRS. Everything that a loophole. If it's there, you've got to utilize it. Obviously, the big shock is that Donald Trump's net worth is only $42,000 rather than $10 billion. Does that change your view on him? Never. Mm-mm. I know he's going to do it, and I know he's going to do the right thing. So, Was it reasonable of him to assert that he did have $10 billion, even though he only had $42,000? I mean, we all kind of, you know, fib a little bit, <laughs> Just but a little. you know what? Were you surprised to see that Donald Trump spent... $38,000 on that Siberian tiger for Vladimir Putin's birthday. Yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised. And I would think he would want to gain friends in the business world. <laughs> oh, my heavens. <laughs> it went on from there. It was kind of funny. That is, that's, I guess people just want to save face. Oh, yeah. You don't want to look like you don't know what's happening. Or Wouldn't you're you still say, unintelligent. seriously? He's so, only well, worth 42000 The other side of it is whenever you watch these, they're taking the clips that work for what they're trying to do. So anyone that called him out of this is not true, then they just skipped him and moved on. 
They only went with the people that had no idea what was going on and tried to fake it. Because <laughs> it's funny. It makes good video. It does. Hey, today is also Miniature Golf Day. This is the day when you can celebrate a little mini golf. Gator golf, give it a whack. Gator golf, yeah. throw it right back. Gator golf, look if you crazy yeah. and playing a game of golf with a gator. It's Gator golf. Hit the ball in his mouth. Gator, gator golf. Do you remember Gator golf? I don't remember Gator Golf. It's basically a mini golf game for kids, but the the gator actually moves around, so it makes it more difficult for the kids to actually get a hole in one. So it's is it's not a live gator. No, it's like a toy. See that? Oh wow, Gator Golf. That is where I got the idea for Gator Ball. Hmm. What would that be? Just a re- a live gator. Because oh, we keep oh. seeing these gators appearing on golf courses. Right. And that's where I got this weird idea of, of gator golf. But then somebody took it to a completely different level. And they're now creating a sporting event at Brigham Young University that will be airing on BYU Radio called Gator Ball. Next spring on BYU Radio, what do you get when you take America's greatest pastime and add one of the most feared creatures on the planet? You get Gator Ball. Gator Ball is the same as baseball with just a few minor adjustments. Two teams of nine players come onto the field wearing uniforms that have been dipped overnight in chicken and fish chum. I don't really want to play this. As the game commences, players need to make sure they're at the top of their game or else... If you hate long, drawn-out games, you'll love Gator Ball. Anytime a pitcher takes too long to throw the ball, or a coach calls for a review, and anytime there's a pickoff attempt, watch out for them Gators. Oh, man, these kids are taking way too long, man. Oh, look at that. And they're going to send out a Gator. You better watch out for that. You may try to steal third, but if you don't make it, a Gator's going to steal your foot. Somebody shoot him! Man, that gator, he locked his foot. He got him out of here, man. And if the gator gets you, the inning's over. Other exciting plays include the sacrifice fly, where the team offers up their injured or low-performing players. The double play, where the gators are given a chance to bite two players in one play. Or the walk-off home run where any player who hits a home run is allowed to walk off the field and watch the remainder of the game from the safety of the dugout. Oh, man, that ball is gone. Oh, he's gone. Oh, man, he ain't going to be no Gator Fool tonight, man. Yeah. Gator ball. A game you can really sink your teeth into. Oh, man, that's going to be great. Sounds exciting. So excited for it, and I'm glad BYU Radio picked it up. Really interactive, too. Totally. I think the fans are going to be much more involved in this than just regular ball. They may wait a year before they put it on TV. Yeah, that's what they're trying. They're going to just warm us up with the audio. Yeah. They don't. Well, you don't want to have every inning that you have to put up that warning that this is graphic. Some players may be injured in the course of this game. But I I think you got to do something to to pick up the sport. Um, I don't want baseball to just disappear. But the good thing is I don't think any animals will be harmed. No way. They're going to just be fed. (laughs) It's a good thing for the animals. Animals are people too. How do they get the gators here? That's the funny thing. Like, How do you get 10 gators? Trucks. Oh. They can just airlift them in. 
Okay. What do you think you're driving in the semis when you pass them on the freeway? There's probably alligators in there. Gators for you gator ball. Well, it's exciting. I like change. I think change is exciting. And uh, so tune in, folks. Make sure you pay attention it, to it. It really spices up baseball. It's it totally right. spices, no pun intended. Just put a little spice on those players. Um, one of the fun things, too, is it also tells you that people are listening because we were joking about this idea years ago. Mm. And now the next thing we know, BYU Sports is saying, let's do it. The voice of the people. It Soon works. it'll be on ESPN mm. and it'll be on Swamp People. They're showing drone racing on CNN now. I know. So they might as well just show Gator Ball, too. That idea is just the worst. Wow. Thank you. Was that... <laughs> That was that just was that just in my head? You looked up when you heard that. I swear someone was talking to me from another sphere. Wow. Sounded like the chief Lego maker from that movie. No. No? A different guy? Yeah, I think it was someone more powerful. Oh, okay. Uh, Domino's Pizza, speaking of drones, they're going to launch a pizza delivery by drone service. Hmm. It always starts in New Zealand. I think they have laws that make it more advantageous to do it there so you just call in to domino's pizza like a lot of the drone testing in the u.s happens just over the border in canada why is that the laws are better for testing well in the u.s there's a bunch of restrictions canadians are early pizza drone adopters there you go so they'll basically you call it in they'll finish your pizza pie put it on a drone send it to your front step Mm, nice then pizza's here then do they do they call you? Does the drone hover? It would have to be a text. It would te- they could text you. It would make no sense to make a phone call if no. you're sending a drone. Send a text. This is technology. Let's use all of our resources. Do you does it just set it down on the ground? That's usually how most of the drone delivery would work is they drop it off in your driveway and then they fly away. I well, think you have to try to snatch it from the drone. That would be and then the you have to thing. do it without getting your hair chopped off. Shredded. And if you could smat or snatch it without getting shredded, 5% off. Crazy bread. Free crazy bread. They give you some garlic bread now. <laughs> Free domino dippers. You won. Here's some bread. So really you have to integrate a lot of stuff. The GPS, the drone itself. It seems like it's crazy because the drone could run out of fuel. Battery power. Ba- yeah, or battery power. Yeah, I guess. But some – I guess you won't have to deal with – you know, a squeaky pizza delivery guy. Hi. <laughs> Can I get a tip? That's crazy. What's happening to this world? I guess, folks, there will be a day where robots will just fly to your house and hand you pizza. And then a robot will clean up the mess. And then a robot will do the dishes. And then a robot will put your children to bed. What's happening? We'll take a break. When we come back, we're talking charitable donations and generosity. Interesting insight into what makes a generous person. Stick with us. Matt Townsend Show, up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, often we hear about people like John Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie as some of the most generous Americans of all times. 
Lists of the most generous philanthropists in the U.S. are regularly produced to show how much these men and women give away. But these lists may uh, actually distort our understanding of generosity. Dr. Richard Gunderman is Chancellor, Professor of Radiology, Pediatrics, Medical Education, Philosophy, Liberal Arts, Philanthropy, and Medical Humanities at, uh, the, at Indiana University. And he recently released an article about how many um, – about how our money – Actually, maybe an impoverished metric of generosity. He's here today to talk to us about it. Dr. Gunderman, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. The hard part about, you know, you know, giving and the generous donations that we that we hear all over the place, whether it's on campuses or, um, you know, in, in our news is, is we're always measuring it in the dollar sign. Uh, so much, so many billions contributed by Bill Gates. So many billions contributed. I mean, even Donald Trump is now getting some bad press about his charitable donations. Hillary Clinton and her foundations. Talk about uh, the metric of using money to measure the generosity of others. Well, I think money is the most obvious way we'd try to appraise somebody's generosity. You know, if you're raising money and one donor gives you $100 and the other donor gives you $1,000, I think all of us would be inclined to think that the $1,000 donor had contributed more. Right. But there are problems with that. For example, simply giving somebody money doesn't mean you've actually benefited them. You know, there have been some rather notorious cases of large donations of money in the past that actually appear to have made their recipients worse off. Right. One, one example would be uh, big donations by John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie to support uh, research and policy around eugenics. Uh, there was a lot of money given in the early part of the 20th century, mm. but I don't think many of us would now say that that, that actually did good. Right. In fact, um, you've, we've seen those examples of Oprah giving away a car, but then everyone needing to pay the taxes. Exactly. So uh, merely giving away money doesn't mean you've given it away well or that it's benefited someone. You could imagine, you know, you're stopped on the street by someone who asks you for money. Uh, it might matter a lot what the person intends to do with the money if you give, that, give it to them. For example, if you're just feeding their drug habit, you may in fact be harming them. Hmm. Uh, you know, on the other hand, if they're, uh, you know, genuinely in need of food to survive, say, then uh, you have a chance to make a difference. You make a distinction about what you call true generosity. What, what do you mean by that term? Well, the idea there would be not just that you're giving away money, but you might be giving away your time or your talent. So uh, think about the people who've made the biggest impact in your life. You know, it might have been obviously your parents, but perhaps it was a Sunday school teacher hmm. or a scout troop leader or a youth soccer coach. Uh, these people didn't give us a dime, but in many cases, they've made huge differences in our lives. And that's the kind of giving that, get, that doesn't even appear as a blip on the radar screen when our entire understanding of philanthropy is co-opted by money, hmm. large donations from the wealthy. And sometimes I guess we feel like we're not doing enough because we're not wealthy people that can just give cash. Yeah, my big fear is that as these rankings of, you know, the countries of the world's greatest philanthropists 
appear year after year uh, that ordinary people like us begin to think, gosh, I'm I'm irrelevant when it comes to generosity. You know, these uh, Silicon Valley billionaires can afford to give away hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. What's my tiny check in comparison with that? Why should I even try? And that's a terrible message. Uh, partly because one of the ways generosity enriches our lives is uh, by bringing out the best in us. And each one of us, you know, if we if we want to lead the best lives of which we're capable and make the biggest contributions we can, uh, we need to know in our hearts that we can make a difference. Hmm. So to to silence us or squelch our efforts by reminding us how tiny our cash donations are in comparison with the super rich, I think is uh, potentially to do grave harm. It seems like exactly that you... Uh, just because of these, the names have money, and then they create these funds, these accounts, these um, these donations. But those donations also end up republicizing and republicizing the name, and over it, exactly it almost right. becomes a market. And when you're giving away money uh, in those quantities and on that scale you almost necess- necessarily can't know very well the people you're trying to help. Now, I, by the way, I'm not trying to say that the world would be a better place if you know Bill Gates and Warren Buffett kept their money to themselves. That's not my point at all. Right. The, but the point is, uh, one of the key features of generosity at its best is you actually know the person you're helping. You see the difference your efforts are making in their life, and perhaps you even build a relationship with them over time. Well, that's hard to do if you're dispensing money by the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. But each of us, you know, in our own neighborhoods, our own faith communities, our own school systems, we can each make uh, a a big difference, even if we're not giving away any money at all. Hmm. You you used, in fact, you almost paraphrased part of it there, that Aristotle quote about uh, the appropriate thing to the appropriate person at the appropriate time. I guess that's how you know you're really being generous. That's exactly right. You can't simply write a check and say, I've done good, or write a bigger check and say, I've done even more good. It's important to know the person or people to whom you're giving, why you're giving now instead of some other time, how you're giving. Are you giving anonymously? Is your name tied to the gift? Is it in a lump sum, let's say, if it's money or you know installments over time? And perhaps uh, the most important question, why are you giving? Hmm. You know, some of us occasionally give because we're shamed into it or, you know, because we want to make sure that our our names appear on the donors list or perhaps uh, in the gold division instead of the silver division of donors. Again, I'm not trying to say that's entirely corrupt, but, you know, we want people at our best to be giving because we believe in uh, the cause and the people to which we're giving. And that means knowing those people and knowing those causes uh, well enough to be able to foresee the impact that our gifts are going to have. Yeah, I love that. And I, like, yeah, like you keep saying, we, we don't want to discourage it. And I mean, I guess a university, for example, they'll take your money anyway. I mean, I, I guess as long as it's legal money, whatever the motivation, but somewhere deep down the line, we want to make sure that the lessons are also being learned uh, about uh, this more truly generous giving. Yes, perhaps... Uh 
the amount of money that Americans give and to whom they give it is important. But equally, or in my mind, even more important is the question, what is the impact of this giving on the character of Americans? Are, are we giving in ways that are helping us as donors, as recipients, become better people? Are we enriching our community? Uh, you know, is our society somehow better off because of this giving? If we don't attend to that carefully and clearly understand what we're doing, in some cases, our gifts can actually more harm than good. Mm, so true. And we could even be unintentionally creating a culture where we expect, you know, the corporations to be the givers, not the people. We'll take a break, continue this discussion with Dr. Richard Gunderman and his uh, wonderful insights into why money is an impoverished metric of generosity. It might be the poorest way to be generous. Uh, we'll come back, continue the discussion, also getting into how your time and giving of your time may be even a better metric. Stick with us. It's the Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Dr. Richard Gunderman. Uh, Dr. Gunderman is a chancellor professor at uh, Indiana University. He also is a 10-time recipient of the Indiana University Trustees Teaching Award and in 2015 received the Indiana University School of Medicine's Inaugural Inspirational Educator Award. Today he's talking with us about why money is an impoverished metric of generosity. Dr. Gunderman, thank you so much for being with us. A pleasure. Now, one of the points of this, I guess, as we get into the charitable donation, you know, side of of humanity and the giving side, uh, the donation doesn't always have to be money. It could be time. It could just be yourself. Absolutely. We every one of us, whether you're a billionaire or impoverished, every one of us comes into contact with people every day who are in need in one way or another. In some cases, that need may be financial, but I think far more often, uh, certainly for me in medicine, uh, you know, you come across people in distress. It's part of our work to minister to human suffering, and uh, that requires that you be attentive, uh, curious, um, compassionate. And if you can lend someone, uh, you know, sometimes uh, an ear to listen, sometimes a shoulder to cry on, I would regard that as a a very important act of generosity. You know, you have your time is limited, you have other things you need to do, but you take time to sit down with that person and talk about what's on their mind, give them a chance to open up their heart. Uh, You've made a difference in somebody's life. And it is a resource that's, uh, in a way, just as difficult to give as, as money, Um, because it's a limited resource. That's absolutely right. I mean, let's face it, it's not necessarily easy to make money. And, you know, hats off to people who uh, manage to do pretty well in that regard. But in a way, it takes far more insight and, uh, you know, human intuition 
uh, to listen to somebody who's unburdening their heart to you, you mm. know, about a relationship difficulty they're having or a loss they've suffered. To me, that actually makes bigger demands on us as people than, uh, you know, laying my checkbook down on a desk and uh, writing a check to somebody. Right. And it's more a part of you. I mean, for me to listen and sit there and be with you and actually be empathic and attentive, it's really me giving more of me than maybe the check. That is a great point, Matt. You are, in fact, bringing more of yourself to life when you're really present with another human being. And, you know, again, in medicine, we get a chance to do that. Babies are born. We care for people, you know, in the late stages of their lives. Sometimes we're with with someone as they're dying. I mean, that really calls upon everything you have to offer as a human being. That you know that that invites us to be fully present in a way uh, handing handing somebody a check just can't. And right. uh, you know, when you do that and feel you've done your best at it, I think you really feel like it's brought you to life. I mean, it's a it's a privilege to to get to care for another person, to share with another person in that way. Mm. It changes it changes the giver and the receiver. And one one of the things I noticed too is we we have so many of these organizations that we might donate our money to and then find out that only 10% of the money we gave even went to the bottom line kind of helping of the the person in need where if i was involved if i if i were there i would i'd probably be able to give a much higher yield of what i'm giving that's absolutely right again i'm not trying to discourage people from donating money but when you give your time you know for sure what it went to and you saw the effects of it with your own eyes. When you pop a check in the mail or, you know, <laughs> click a button on your college or university's website, I, you know, I suspect right. it's put to very good use. But you really don't know for sure. And you certainly don't see the effects of it with your own eyes in as immediate a way. Do you, do you notice, are there other factors such as race or gender that determine or dictate, influence our generosity? I think there's no doubt about it. That's not an area in which I'm an expert, but it's clear, for example, that at least some stages of life, women may be more generous than men, and uh, there are differences between different uh, ethnic, uh, religious, and racial groups. Hmm. But the the point I would want to make is that we're all human beings, and we're all able to express this virtue that's been recognized for thousands of years that we call generosity. And one crucial point is that uh, in being generous, we're helping the beneficiaries, the recipients of our treasure and time and talent. But in fact, I deeply believe that we're also enriching our own lives by giving well. Mm. And it's uh, it's funny because it, it seems like when I was growing up, a lot of the generous giving was based around, you know, kind of a, a religious mentality or a church setting, a religious group, a paradigm that came from, you know, the religious areas now. And then it seems some of that has been offloaded from churches carrying that burden more to NGOs and government entities. Yeah, I think that's right. And as giving becomes more impersonal, like as we expect, I don't know, federal or state or even local agencies to tend to the needs of others, 
perhaps so we don't have to be bothered with it, right? Mm -hmm. I paid my taxes, I've discharged my responsibility, now let the uh, state-funded social service, service agencies take care of these problems. I think we're in fact impoverishing ourselves. Mm. As we remove ourselves from the playing field of giving and sharing, we're actually diminishing our own lives. That's so true. And um, in the end, it's, again, we're just, I always say, we're always a disaster away from getting right back to it. That's exactly right. You look at what happened after Hurricane Katrina uh, in Louisiana. You look at what happened uh, in New York City after 9-11. You know, nobody wishes for a disaster, but in those situations, we seem to have a capacity to come together uh, to connect with one another that tends to remain hidden uh, for much of the rest of our lives. You know, just imagine you're at work and uh, the elevator grinds to a halt, you know, hmm. and it's utter yeah. darkness and you're trapped with with uh, the people you ride the elevator with every day. But now uh, you're, you consider yourself in some peril. Well, you know, people begin to reach out to each other in ways we don't normally do. So true, and because humans will naturally reach out to humans, it's. But then, if we're kind of in this outsourcing of generosity mentality, where, I, yeah, I paid it. I, yeah, I paid it. Work, so we're good. Got my charity that's covered. A, that's a great point. I, you know, it, it, at our worst, we aim to discharge our charitable obligations as quickly, as painlessly, and impersonally as possible. That's giving at its worst. This is just a box I have to tick off Mm -hmm. on my to-do list. I've done it, and now I can get back to what's important to me. That's a terrible attitude because it indicates that our human priorities are out of whack. We've let some lower things get on top of some higher things. And, you know, sometimes we need a reminder that it's not so much what we get or accumulate for ourselves, but what we give and share with others that really defines us and, uh, you know, is most responsible for the quality of our lives. In fact, you mentioned that you don't need to be the billionaire giver like Dale, Car- or not Dale, but uh, Andrew Carnegie, but you need, I mean, some of the great uh, leaders, um, I guess now Saint Mother Teresa, uh, Gandhi, these people died with nothing and yet are known as people that were so generous in their life. I think that's right. And take the case of uh, the woman I've called most of my life, Mother Teresa. You know, she'd taken a vow of poverty. She essentially had no personal property to her name, uh, but she gave a great deal, not only treasure, but mainly time, talent, and I would say gifts of the heart. But she also served as kind of a beacon for the rest of us. And I think maybe the greater good of her life was not the people that she helped directly herself, but how she helped in, in, uh, inspire in the rest of us that aspiration to give and make a difference in the lives of others. Mm. What would you say, what advice would you give to someone now who, who maybe wants to go in, restart that truly generous spirit and, uh, and kick it into gear? Well, there are, you know, many possibilities. A simple one is to uh, find an opportunity, you know, to perhaps read to a child who's struggling in school, 
uh, get involved, you know, in a, in a soup kitchen, as people say. But I'll tell you, one of the I think one of the most important steps we need to take to becoming as fully generous as we can be is to actually educate ourselves about what it means to be generous and the difference generosity can make in our lives. And uh, if you want a short work you could read that would fire your uh, imagination in this area, Mm. one of the ones that I think is the best, it's become trite to some people, but is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, The Tale of Ebenezer Scrooge. That is not just a simple children's fable or, uh, you know, a homely story we should dust off every year around Christmas time. That is, in fact, a very powerful and deep exploration of the difference generosity can make not only in the life of a person, but the lives of every uh, person that person touches. Mm, I love it. And, and that's, I mean, that's something you could start reading now so that you're up and at it by the time the holiday season comes and you could literally transcend your, your holiday, take Absolutely. it to a completely different level. A Christmas Carol is at most a 90-minute read, and uh, here's the way to make the most of it. Find at least one other person who's willing to read it with you and talk about it, and you've already started practicing the virtue of generosity. Mm. Well, Richard, you got a great spirit, my friend, and uh, we appreciate you being on the show, giving us some light. We definitely need it. Dr. Richard Gunderman's his name, again, a professor of radiology at the Indiana University, author of the article, Why Money is an Impoverished Metric of Generosity. In fact, let's kick in our time as another measurement as well. We'll take a break, come back, continue helping you see the good in the world, folks. It's everywhere. In fact, it's in you as well. We'll take a break. Boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Hey, friends, welcome back. You know, according to the National Philanthropic Trust, the average annual household contributes $2,974 to uh, family philanthropy, giving, donations. And overall, Americans give about $373 billion in in 2015, which is a 4.1% increase from 2014. So don't think people's giving is going down. They're giving more and more, and that probably goes up and down with the economy as well. But uh, I think our guest made some great points about the fact that where this giving comes from, it doesn't necessarily need to come from – your uh, the big corporations, the big rich people, and and a lot of times I feel like it's it is what happens. We, you know, we know our organization raised all this money, and so they paid to the United Way, and so that means we don't need to pay at the United Way. Yeah, the problem is you end up losing the opportunity, the peace, the lesson learned, and you even end up losing the opportunity to have your family become a part of that. One of the things we do in my church is uh, we used to have janitors that would clean all of the chapels, and now what they've found is why? Let's have the members clean the chapels. So they pass around a list every week, and you sign up to take your family to go clean your church. And what a powerful opportunity to, uh, 
to take your family and wash the windows and the doors and the door handles and the restrooms in your church. And the minute you're doing that, amazingly, the conversations change. Now, when I, I just signed our kids up, and when I let them know we're doing it, they call, all kind of looked at me like, ah, can't someone else do it? Sure. Problem is, that's how we become generous, is by giving, not by having someone else give for us. So suggest highly that we all get our heads back in the generous mode. And again, I, I personally feel like I'm, I, I'm strapped. I can't just keep giving financially, but I have time and I have talents and I have resources that are other than just financial resources that I can give. Let me donate time. My wife just donated time for our, our sports teams. We've donated time at school. We may donate. I donate speeches and go do free speeches all over the uh, the place just to help because I can give. That's what I can do. I can't just keep throwing cash at everything, but we got to get our head back in the game. Plus, another way I think to become grateful and and more generous is noticing what you've been given yourself. A fun activity you might want to try is sit your family down and just one night, let's try to come up with 100 things that as a family we are all grateful for. Blessings, gifts, wonderful things we've been given. It could be our own talents. It could be things people have given to us. How many times has somebody just showed up with cookies at our house just because, or friends, or neighbors, and make a list of 100 things that you are more grateful for. Nothing will make you happier than when you actually can can identify the good things that happen in your world. Um, another powerful tool is simply give your passion. Find something that you really love to do and share it with other people. Uh, I just had a friend talk to me about how they go as a family because everyone in the family except the dad loves to sing, loves to act, loves to entertain. So the father, uh, because it makes his family so happy, they go travel and spend their vacation time performing at, uh, you know, kind of different festivals. And I'm like, really? Are you getting better at performing? And he's like, not really. But it sure makes my daughters happy. And they'll go spend a month of their vacation time just doing what they're passionate about. A powerful gift you could give would be passion. Another powerful gift would be compassion. How many times now do we hear these stories about the uh, these refugees coming from Syria and from other countries, and yet we don't have compassion for them? Well, yeah, they're going to kill us. Well, again, as we talked about in the first hour, statistically, not really likely. You know, three in 10 billion will create a problem for you. But... We can still give. We can still care. We can still share. Uh, just giving, losing a part of yourself to uh, to give back to another. And one of the other rules, just simply of giving and being generous, is whenever we direct the hour, the arrows outside of us to en- enable and help other people, it stretches us and makes us bigger people. Anytime we're pushing the arrows back into ourselves, it shrinks us. It makes us smaller people. If we want to be a bigger people, a bigger population we got to push those arrows out towards others. So a little coach's corner for you. Just some hope, some insight. Remember, part of the goal here on the show is to help you see the good in the world. And if we can, also help us all be better in the world. That's hour number two. 
We'll be back. More ideas, more insights right here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Happy International Day of Peace to you all. This is the day where it you get to you get to create more peace in your life. Finally. What's it good for? It's good for peace. War is good for peace? No. What good is it? This is the time when we make peace, not war. Right now, if I could just slide a little daisy down one of your rifle barrels, I would do it. Mm. We need to make more peace. Yeah. Today's the day. International Day of Peace has begun with the ringing of the peace bell at the United Nations headquarters. Peace means so much more than the absence of war. More ordinary conflicts arise from disputes with family, colleagues, neighbors, and these disturb our sense of peace. So today is the day you just forgive people. You let them go. Quit justifying. No more holding grudges? No more holding grudges. What's the fun in that? Light a candle. Mm. Love. Love, 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 love. It's also... uh, if you're not going to go for the peace goal, then it's just miniature golf day. A disco miniature golfing queen. From Phineas and Ferb. We've got a lot of disco miniature golfing queens on our team. Dave, do you subscribe to Disco Queen, uh, Disco Miniature Golfing Queen magazine? No, is there such a magazine? According to the song. Wow. Every time I hear this song, uh, which I think is, this is once I've heard it. So uh, every time? Yeah. I think of Sadie. Hmm. And every time we turn on music in here, she just starts dancing in the fishbowl. It's like she's just a happy little guppy in there. Swimming in the fishbowl. Happy days, folks. Miniature Golf Day and International Peace Day. So much to talk about that we will get to. Holy cow. First of all, if, if you need a reset on your love, your love life, your marriage, if you need an, uh, you know something to pick up the energy. Have a kid. In your marriage. Not, <laughs> not that. <laughs> oh, wait. Eight tricks to help you fall more deeply in love with your partner. We will be giving you eight tricks, things you might not normally think to do. Really? The dishes? Mm, Not even that. Hmm. Not that that's bad. You can do that. Sure, yeah. So we'll give you the tricks. I'm not going to give them too early. We also – we're going to go to BYU Sports Nation. What if you reorganize the Tupperware closet? Uh, Maybe. This would work. That's one of the tricks if you're you're loving your partner their way. 
Okay. And so if what your partner wants is Tupperware reorganization. We, we, have, we have this cabinet. You open it and everything just yeah, tidal waves we have, out. We yeah. have the same cabinet. Yeah. That's always fun. Yeah. You know, we found it's really fun to have one of our kids organize it because, you know, they think it's going to be easy. Mm. But then you got to find all the lids. Right. It's the lids. I think the lids are the problem. Totally. Oh, okay. So – We'll be getting to the tricks. We'll also be getting to BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show. We always like to do a little handoff there. We'll talk about the heroes of the day, plus other news at a Pizza Hut. They're turning uh, their boxes now into playable pizza box turntables. Mix tables and a microphone. So, so you can now do a little Sir Mix-A-Lot. We just have to get some records now. Yeah, that's the pizza. Oh, wow. Get messy. You just eat the pizza. We'll talk about that. Pepperoni would mess with the needle, wouldn't it? Yeah, totally. Okay, go on. Absolutely. You also have to check your purses, folks. If you have a purse, check it because you may have a $150,000 lotto ticket in your purse. What if it's a man purse? It's a Merce. Yeah. If it's a Merce? I have one of those. Check them. It's called a messenger bag. Yeah. Which is just overcompensating for calling it a Merce. It's a total Merce. Okay. I've seen it because yours has flowers on it. It's nice. Really nice. It's got some uh, rhinestones. Some. It's been beju- bedazzled. Yeah. Bejeweled. Yeah. Would a thief try to steal a purse from a man? No. Depends on what's in it. But would the thief know? If it had a $150,000 lotto ticket? If he was a good thief, sure. he would have done his homework. That's right. Always research, we tell the cons. Always research. So we'll get to all of that, plus the hero of the day. But first... Let's get to Sadie Nielsen, find out what's going on in the headlines around the country. Sadie, what's up? Senator Elizabeth Warren on Tuesday tore into Wells Fargo CEO during his Tuesday afternoon appearance before a Senate com- Senate committee hearing on the bank's controversial account opening practices. Warren, a fierce critic of big U.S. banks, called on the CEO to resign and be criminally investigated for the company's millions of fake accounts created over several years and firing of 5,300 employees. San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick will put his money where his mouth is, promising Tuesday to donate $100,000 per month for the next 10 months. Kaepernick promised to donate $1 million to community charities several weeks ago after national controversy arose from his refusal to stand during the pregame national anthem. Kaepernick emphasized the silent protest was against police brutality and racial inequality and said that he would donate the money to help people affected by those issues. A new study published Tuesday finds that most DNA damage caused by smoking reverses itself five years after a person quits, but changes in at least 19 genes that can last decades. Researchers said that by finding affected genes not previously associated with smoking, they could be used to determine who is at risk for developing diseases caused by smoking in the future. And finally, Matt, uh, do you know anyone who lives in Washington, D.C., who, you know, is in need of proposing to someone? They need some ideas or something like that. Mm, no. Well, if you did, Georgetown University's basketball team encouraged fans to perform wedding proposals during the upcoming season by offering a special proposal ticket package. <laughs> the package shared by Georgetown Athletics includes a custom T-shirt, an on-hand photographer, and even a money-back guarantee if the recip- recipient of the proposal says no. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, pretty good, right? Uh, a proposal planner will be on site, and as well as your family members and friends will get tickets across the stadium for not, maintaining the surprise element. I'm not sure. I'm not a marketing expert, uh-huh. but is there a large audience of people that need to propose? 
In Washington, D.C.? In Washington, D.C. at a game? I mean, that seems like... We should look that up. Yeah, let's look it up. Yeah. It, I mean, proposals are going on at BYU Marriott's Center Yeah, if all BYU the time. Athletics did that? Yeah. Heck oh, yeah. There'd be a ton of people. Place. ton of people lining up for that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, good. Good news. Thanks, uh, Sadie. Appreciate the the news brief. You should do it during a campus forum. Would that be a little nerdy? Well, it's a little nerdy because in the forum, there's actually just a speaker. Mm. And there's not like a kiss cam. Right. Nerd alert! Yeah, that might not go over very well. Like in the yesterday, Ari Fleischer spoke the past. Fleischman? Fleischer. Fleischman was the the butter guy. Oh. Oh, and the yeast guy. Isn't Fleischman butter too? I think so. And uh, they might have a whole range of products. We're not going to go through them though. Yeah. But Ari Fleischer was the Republican, uh, what do they call him, spokesperson for President Bush. Yes. I think first four years or something. Doesn't he do, I think he's on CNN. Is that where he is now, I think? Yeah. So he's he's one of the 59,000 talking heads. So in the middle of the whole thing, I I don't know that you'd want somebody to say, hey, (laughs) kiss cam. (laughs) Kiss cam. We first met at a forum five years ago. Will you marry me? Oh, that would be fun, though, actually. That makes some seriously good news. Uh, interesting little story from Pizza Hut. If you're keeping score, they keep, they, they're they the ones that keep trying to create creative boxes. Mm-hmm. You know, They're trying to keep up with Domino's, who uses drones now to deliver the pizza. They've had boxes that have uh, USB chargers, so you can charge up your phone and other devices while you eat your pizza. Yeah. Now they have a... Now they have a turntable... So you can so the box turns into a DJ like spin center. Two turn two turntables. Yeah. And a microphone. And a microphone. And you, you Where it's at. You, Beastie Boys. Sorry, go on. <laughs> features two decks, a crossfader, pitch volumes, cue buttons. It's got it all. The ability to rewind music. Is this what they had in mind? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is what they wanted. This is what they were going for. Back to the whole marketing aspect of this. I mean, the quality of those speakers, not very good. No. But, I mean, it is just a pizza box. But you'd think you should be able to get a better quality out of it. (laughs) Can't you just see him like... Mixing it? Mixing no. it. No. Well, fans claim their pizza box decks, uh, the, by the way, only in the U.K. So if you're looking for one here in the United States. Why don't we get any of this? Because we're not innovative like that. Who on earth is going to buy their DJ kit through Pizza Hut? Apparently this teacher is. Apparently. Just keeps going. Oh. That's what happens when See, you rub you the needle on a pepperoni. I did that on a record player once and got in trouble. Did your dad get mad? Oh, unglued, ruining whatever record I decided to stop. See, that's why I would wait till my mom left before I did that. <laughs> then I'd do it all afternoon. Scratch up some Barry Manilow. Mm-hmm. Barry Manilow. That's, uh, I don't think that's going to sell pizza, not to be rude. There's, I think the DJ market's a very small market. 
Maybe it's like a greeting card. You open up the lid, and that's the song that the pizza starts singing. Now that would be interesting. And if the pizza could rotate, if it were, if it would like twirl, like and just spin, and you can just grab your piece off, mm. and if it could stay balanced while you keep pulling pieces off of the pie. I'm just. I don't know. Just throwing some ideas out there. Hey, uh, it's Springfield, Oregon. You got to listen to this one. A disgruntled customer allegedly drove her SUV into a Safeway. Yes, a grocery store at, at a grocery store in Springfield. Huh. Oh, okay. Police said at the at the time of the incident, there were four employees, two customers in the store near the front doors, but no one was injured during the incident. The incident began at 4 p.m. Noella Fay, 43, attempted to purchase $2,200 worth of gift cards. They said when her check did not clear, she became enraged. She left but returned. Uh-oh. Parking just feet away from the doors of the store, according to authorities. She's mad. An employee told her, move your vehicle. Uh-oh. She drove right through the doors. And then once inside the store, she drove her 2004 Chevy Tahoe all through the store. Down the aisle. She then reversed back out of the aisle. She then, wants drive-up service. Then drove behind the registers toward the deli. Yeah, nice. isn't that everybody's fantasy to just not even have to get out of your car? Totally. Drive down the, the aisles. You want to hit the frozen food all last so everything doesn't melt. That's right. right. Go get your milk on the way back. The ice cream on the way out the door. She eventually drove her car out of the store, exiting through the east doors, and sped off. Wow. Ath- authorities said the vehicle was found abandoned nearby. Now, was this in Springfield, Oregon? No, this was in Springfield, where the where the great Simpsons live. That's that's near Springfield, Oregon. Where where is not Illinois? I think what we're talking about is Springfield, Illinois. No, this is Springfield, Oregon. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Is that where the Simpsons live? Yeah, they, the, the town that inspired. Yeah, Springfield, where Oregon. the Simpsons that's live. That's Springfield, took place. Oregon. This sounds more like a Shelbyville story. It does. It does. Shelbyville is where the people are that type of people. Yeah. They're just past the tire fire that never stops. (laughs) (laughs) I like, by the way, the store music because... This is good. When I drive into stores, I always roll my windows down so I can hear the music. I believe it's called Muzak. Yeah. Because it's fake, obviously. By a guy named Zach. Yeah. Muzak. So uh, be careful, folks. When you're in Springfield, Oregon... Watch out for the Simpsons. Also, don't be driving your car into the store. You're going to hurt somebody. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will be getting into the tricks, eight of them, for how to, to restart your love, how to help you fall more deeply in love with your spouse. You're not going to want to miss this one. Then you can send it to your spouse and just say, hey, just an idea. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger. We'll be right back. Wise men say only fools rush When you first fall in love, it seems natural to leave notes, make dinner for your partner fight to spend every waking moment with them. 
But after a while, we let those little things kind of slip away, don't we? We become comfortable with spending less time, putting in less effort. But those little things are what helped you to fall in love with your partner in the first place. So we may as well reinstitute those little things. Uh, Leslie Dorries joins us. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and author of Blueprint for a Lasting Marriage, How to Create Your Happily Ever After with More Intention, Less Work. She's here today to discuss her article, Eight Tricks to Help You Fall More Deeply in Love. Leslie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What a fun list. Uh, and that's what we were excited about is the fact that there's just eight pretty simple little tricks that we can use to to reignite the love. Let's get into them. Um, first and foremost, I guess, when, when we think about it, we used to do these things more, I guess, more obviously more naturally when we were first in love. So they used to work. Absolutely, which is why they will work again. Just do it again. Okay, give us or some of better them. better yet, just keep doing it. Yeah, wouldn't that <laughs> be ideal? Stop. You don't have to stop when, once you find something that's working. The first one is try something new together. What do you mean? Well, we don't stay the same over the course of time. You know, we'll get different interests. We, you know, we, we learn, we grow, we get attracted to things. And what tends to happen with couples is they go off and do their own thing. But if you actually choose to do something new together, you release all those um, wonderful endorphins and, and neurotransmitters that we had when we first started doing something right. together. And so when we, and when we choose to do it together as opposed to separately, we're experiencing that with each other, and that gives us a shared bond that nobody else is participating in. And there's there's little things like my partner may have a favorite hobby. They may have something that 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 they've fallen in love and, and have been giving all their attention and time to. So if we could find something that we could do together that is a hobby, then we might be able to salvage some time together. Well, that's the other important thing is that it's spending quality time together, not just time together. Right. And. And it's important for individuals to have their own interests because I think that gives us something interesting to talk about, and plus it also feeds our own soul. But it's important to have those things together as a couple that, so that we can stay bonded and connected with each mm. other. And, and uh, that's, I guess, what's great about life is there's no end to what you could learn together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So next one is learn your partner's love language. We've had Gary on the show. Gary Chapman wrote the book, The Five Love Languages. And, and talk to us about why learning your partner's language is, uh, is so critical. Well, because when we don't speak the same language, there's room for miscommunication. And unfortunately, we use English, which, def- which doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to everybody. And the way that I feel love may be very different from the way you feel love, but we always resort to our own language. So if, and, and in truth, my language happens to be um, acts of service. Now, I love it when my husband buys me gifts. But if he never bought me another gift again, as long as the two of us were alive, but still did things for me, I would know that he loved me. Hmm. And, and it's particularly critical to understand your partner's love language because the flip side 
what makes us feel good can also have its downsides. So if your language is words of affirmation, criticism is going to be much harder for you than, say, for me, because mine's acts of service. If my husband's ignoring me, then I don't feel love. Hmm. And I guess that's what's that's what's interesting is if I can learn what my wife, uh, how she wants to be loved, and then I intentionally go practice that, learn how to do that, is that, that to me is a more a better sign of loving her than just, you know, than than giving her a lot of what she doesn't want. Exactly, because what it shows is that she's important enough to you to maybe step outside your comfort zone a little bit. Right. And one of the things that I always talk about is you know, learning your partner's language, speaking it is something that you really should put effort into, but how that presents itself is where negotiation can come in. So say, for instance, my language is physical touch. You might be uncomfortable with public displays of affection. That's okay as long as we're doing it in private. Right. Yeah. And it's like every time we get in the car, we still touch. Um, but yeah, you, you like that's a great way to put it, like negotiate it. We have to talk it out. And the mere fact you're having a conversation about love languages, that's probably a good start. Exactly. And, you know, it tends to take us deeper into what does love mean? Because it doesn't mean the same things to everybody or how it's experience isn't the same, but we kind of have this wonderful word, right. <laughs> great, but you know, do I love you the same way I love ice cream? Of course mm-hmm. not, but, that's, <laughs> but we just have this one word. One of the things, uh, another point you bring up that I guess would facilitate at least our ability to have these conversations is this simple idea that we're going to make time and schedule time to be alone. You know, once the kids start coming and you have big projects due at work, alone time becomes very scarce. So you're saying schedule it. Get it on the calendar. Right. And because that is one of the things that falls by the wayside. The squeaky wheel, what has to be done, will get attended to. So kids having to be put to bed or dinner being cooked or going to work, those are all things that have to be done. And if your relationship is okay, then we tend not to spend a lot of time focusing on it. But then we have what I call the, you know, the death of a thousand cuts that, you know, we're just slowly killing our relationship by ignoring it. But if we make sure that we have concentrated specific time to be together then we can keep that alive. And we're not talking, you know, I'm talking maybe 20 minutes, Hmm. half an hour a day. (laughs) Right. I'm not talking like, you know, now, if you can get away for a weekend, I think that's wonderful. And I think you should plan that on occasion. But it's what we do daily. And, you know, we all get 168 hours. That's all any of us get a week. That's all you're going to have, right? And how we spend our time tells people what's important to us. And Mm. so that's what I get when people say, well, my marriage is important to me, but now you're going to tell me why that's not a true statement. Mm. If you can't find 20 minutes to a half an hour a day to spend with your partner, I'm questioning how important your relationship is. Because you are finding that time to spend on Facebook. Uh, You're finding that time to spend on Netflix. You're finding the time 
maybe just not for each other. Right. And so I, one of the things that's helpful is to take a look at just a normal week and see where your time leaks are. See where you can pick up that you know, 20 minutes to a half an hour. And I know when kids are young, you know, I, I had two children. I tell people I now have adults because they're both over the age of 20. <laughs> but, you know, but part of this is I get that that can really be hard, which is why making it intentional is what's going to get you through those harder, mm. younger years with the kids. Another idea you you throw out there is the idea that you, in your setting of time, make sure you set some time aside for intimacy chats. What do you mean by an intimacy chat? Well, an intimacy chat is when you are really spending concentrated one-on-one time with each other. It's probably what you did when you were first dating. I mean, I remember when my husband and I first met, we lived in two different states, and we would spend probably two hours every night on the phone with each other. By the way, this was back when there were long-distance phone charges. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we spent a lot of money. But you're concentrating on that. You're completely focused on that. There's no TV. The kids are in bed. You're not, you know, you're not having Facebook. You're running in the background. You're actually just spending time because a lot of times what we do with each other is what I call information exchange. You know, when are you coming home? When's Susie's PTA meeting? Um, you know, are we going to your families for Christmas? Whatever. But if we spend some concentrated time together, we've gone past just the what we're doing, and now we're into the why. And this really lets us connect with our partners. And the more intimate we are emotionally and intellectually, the greater the chance we will also be intimate physically. So the intimacy chat help us get there. Well, and it's, it's again, these dating couples, it seems so natural to just be able to talk for hours and hours and hours. And even eye to eye, which we don't do as much when we're married, um, and uh-huh. and just focus time on learning about each other and understanding each other. So making making a specific, you know, moment to go have deeper conversations, it, it's going to be valuable. Well, and there's an assumption that because I've lived with you for a long time, I know you. Mm-hmm. And that's, and we all know what happens when we assume. Right, right. My husband and I have been together for 31 years, and sometimes one of us will say something to the other one, and we'll look at each other like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> because we don't really know each other. Right. And we're changing, and we're growing, right? We're, it's dynamic. We, and, and there's certain things I've never had to bring up today, and, I mean, until today. A fear, a concern. Yeah. Yeah, I've never experienced this. This is something new. This is great. Great learning. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Leslie uh, Dorries. And if you go to her website, lesliedorries.com, you can uh, get even more information about her books, her, her ideas. We'll come back, continue the discussion, eight tricks to help you fall more deeply in love. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you been married and you feel like the marriage is just sliding a bit, just sliding away from you? Well, uh, Leslie Dorries is with us, and she is going to help us. Eight tricks to help you fall more deeply in love. We've already gone over a few of them. Try some uh, something new together. Learn your partner's love language. Schedule alone time. Set aside, uh, set aside some time for intimacy talk. And uh, now, Leslie, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for being with us. I enjoy being able to share this with people. <laughs> it really is. It's valuable insight. Again, people can find out more at lesliedores.com, uh, L-E-S-L-I-D-O-A-R-E-S.com. And uh, Leslie, the fifth idea that you were giving us, um, interesting, share your spouse's interests. A lot of us don't share similar interests. You know, I may not be into... Facebook or whatever, and she may not be into my hobbies, but how? First of all, why do we need to share the interest, and how do we go about, you know, liking what they like? Okay, well, it isn't necessarily liking what they like. It's the willingness to experience it with them. So if, if your partner really enjoys something, then there's a curiosity about, well, what is it about this that you like? Um, When I find that out, it tells me more about who you are, what matters to you. And when I go with you, then I get to see you in a whole different light. I get to see you light up with excitement. I get to see you Maybe if it's something that, you know, maybe if it's something physical, I get to see you really putting forth an effort. Hmm. And it allows me to see you in a very different light than just walking around the house, you know, yeah. well, taking and, care of the kids. And help me, I mean, it can help me understand you. What is it about exactly. you that loves this? And it could open up a whole other side of, of a partner to you. Exactly. So it isn't necessarily that I have to suddenly become a big fan of what you're doing. Right, right. Or, but it, it does, and it allows you to get to know me when you're willing to come and do something that's meaningful to me, then you're learning about me. I love that. And it almost, in a way, segues and leads us into your next point, which is about spicing up your sex life. We've been married. It it could become so routine. We're tired. We feel like we're not quite what we used to be. How do we spice it up a bit, especially if we're fairly conservative people anyway? Well, the whole part of Sex and you know it's the difference between having sex versus making love. I mean, and and being intimate. Physical intimacy is important because it releases all kinds of wonderful hormones. It releases oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone, and actual sexual release can help with tension. And so we don't want it to become a chore. We don't right. want to be okay. It's Tuesday night. You know what that means? You know, we say <laughs> we got fifteen minutes. Yeah. Uh, it's about slowing down and really, again, getting to know your partner, sharing yourself with your partner. It's why vacation sex, if you go without your kids, not a family vacation, Mm -hmm. but a a couple vacation. It's why vacation sex is usually better because we're not rushed. You know, we get to take our time. We're spending lots of quality time together outside of the bedroom. Right. So when we get inside the bedroom, it's, 
you know, it becomes much more meaningful and connecting. Yeah. And so you can try all different kinds of things. And sometimes even something like, you know, taking just just taking sexual intercourse off the table, but see how can I let my partner experience pleasure without going there. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of interesting ways that aren't necessarily outrageously kinky right. or you know and the goal is never ask you know never never do anything you're not comfortable doing um you might you might be a little hesitant about it but if there's an actual absolutely no this will make me uncomfortable then try something else because it's not about making you uncomfortable or having somebody feel manipulated mm-hmm. it's really about connecting and learning about each other. And I think, again, the mere fact that we're talking about it, we are experimenting or trying and spending time together, all of it has the potential to elevate. Um, and, and not, and, and especially if, if you can see a partner that's really worried and making sure that the, the other is involved and connected. Another great point you brought up is surprise and delight each other for no apparent reason. Just find a way to serve and surprise each other. Well, yes. You know, I mean, you know, when when you get flowers unexpectedly at the office or you find a little love note um, on the dashboard of your car. I mean, these are the kinds of things that just say, oh, my partner's thinking about me. And you can turn this into a contest. I can't remember. I read somewhere with a celebrity that she and her husband did this. And I can't remember who it was. And I thought this is fantastic because they would try to outdo each other. Not in terms of how big of a gesture it was, but it was almost like, you know, okay, tag, you're it. I, I, I did this, you know, I, I'm one up, you know, I, I did this for you. And then it turns into a fun game of how do I please and delight my partner? Yeah, I love it. I mean, again, it's, it's time, it's attention. Last but not least is laughing together more often because laughing releases chemistry, right? Right. And it's almost impossible. I, in fact, I dare anybody to really have a heartfelt belly laugh and be angry at the same time. I don't think you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> and it just lightens the mood. And sometimes we can get so caught up in something that if one person just starts bursting out laughing, it's contagious. And <laughs> I've always said we should be bottling little kids' laughter so that, you know, anytime we need we need a laughter fix, we just pop the cork on the so bottle. So true, yeah. That would be so, so great. When we're, when we're laughing with our partners, it, it's, again, we're experiencing a moment of joy. And the more moments of joy we can bring into our lives, the better we're going to be. Mm. It's true. And again, all these ideas, all eight of them, Leslie, very simple, very doable for all of us. Man, we appreciate you and your great uh, insight there. Again, Leslie Dories is her name. You can go to her website, lesliedories.com, and continue reading there along with uh, checking out her books and other great resources. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show. Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody. 
to the Matt Townsend Show. A little Earth, Wind, and Fire karaoke moment that we caught uh, Jerem and Spencer doing a little karaoke. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Yo, I'm Matthew. We heard you. We heard your karaoke. That was really good. Today's Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, today's the 21st of September. Oh yeah, it is. That's right. See, so to, I think today's my dad's birthday. Is it? So tonight mm. something's going to happen, according to Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm. I don't know. I, okay, I love Earth, Wind, and Fire. I grew up listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire all the time. I love. I love Earth, Wind, and Fire. I this is a big day for me. This is huge, and it's your dad's birthday. Maybe and it's, I think it's my dad's birthday. Maybe that, it might be tomorrow. I can't remember. You know, Jerem, that seems like something you'd want to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to make you feel sad that you. Now I'm going to Facebook right now to be like, check is it today's out. Is dad? turning a special age today. Hey, guys, um, today also uh, another holiday that um, many don't talk about. It is um, Miniature Golf Day. Ah, oh, Miniature cool. Golf Brian Day. Logan Day. Were, you, were you guys big miniature golfers? No, what does he call He calls it putt-putt. Yeah, putt. I would kick your butt at putt-putt. Putt-putt. <laughs> yeah. Logan. It's, it's not putt-putt. <laughs> it's miniature golf. Yes, we know. Yeah. And Brian Logan I, is special. I saw Brian Logan wearing a green jacket that he said he won at the Masters Putt-Putt Miniature Golf Tournament. If you Seriously, you're joking right now, but I, if you weren't, I totally would believe you because <laughs> that seems like something he would do. He's that into Putt-Putt. Yes. Apparently. <laughs> that is funny. Hey, somebody just told me, um, I'm not going to name names, but somebody just told me that um, West Virginia is going to just destroy BYU. Wait, was it Karan White? No. Oh. Well, the line on the game was one and a half. It's up to six or seven now. Really? Yeah. Do Which you is wild. <laughs> this is um kay. Let's go, man. You're excited. I am excited. Yeah, it's it's an intriguing situation because the BYU offense stinks right now. Yes. But that, but that doesn't mean that they're going to stink forever. No. I think they'll make some tweaks and be a lot better this week. And West Virginia's defense is typically not great. They have team speed, but it's not great. So there are some opportunities for points. Is, and West Virginia can fill it up. So, so this will be fun. Be, last year, Matty, yeah. BYU in the first three games, two dramatic you know, wins, a loss to UCLA. Okay? Uh-huh. There, was a, there, were, there was no tank and uh, no gas. No gas, tank. empty. Week four, they go to the Eastern Time Zone, they get blown out. Okay, It's the same situation going into this year. I hope that BYU learns a lesson from that. And Ooh. Michigan's not as good as West Virginia. Sorry, vice no, West Virginia's, West Virginia's not, yeah. not as good as Michigan. Okay, so here's a question about, so does West Virginia, are they going to pick apart the backs, the DBs? Are they a good They'll passing team? They'll throw it team? deep. Uh. They like to launch it. <laughs> they have some capable uh, okay. capable dudes, receivers. Okay. They're always fast. They, they have three, t- they have three uh, 50-plus yard completions Holy in, on the season. BYU is zero. BYU is two over 20. Just by comparison. Man. But we have a really cool rap video out. That's mm-hmm. right. James the Mormon will join us today. Will he? In studio. Is he going to sing? Absolutely. James is cool. I know. He's, he's been on, on our uh, show. He's He was on Countdown to Kickoff Saturday. He's been on your show? Yeah. Yeah. He's cool. He. I think he wanted me to be a part of that rap. Yeah. Just because I know how to like lay down the lay down the mm-hmm. the the lines. Yeah. Then he realized that you're full of garbage and then he didn't want you to be in it anymore <laughs> you're so rude and I'm, i do appreciate you self-censoring though that was really good catch <laughs> yeah there was a little pause there that wasn't was it? a great catch that you full of 
garbage. <laughs> That was nice. Uh, you know I love you. Man. I know you do, Spence, and I, I love got you. So much love for you, brother. And your and I love your family. Thank you. I saw somehow I saw your Facebook feed or something, and I saw a really cute. No, no, I saw your commercials, both of you. Oh yeah, those are yep. great commercials with your families. We had fun shooting. How come they didn't let your wife say anything? Thanks. Well, what's funny is I had to trick I had to trick Brittany into coming to that shoot. Oh, you did? Because she's like. She does not like to be in front of the camera or on TV. And so I, knowing that they wanted her to be there because it was like this family baseball atmosphere, mm-hmm. was like, hey, just come and eat and Get hang out food. at the game for a minute. Churro. And, and then, like, as we slowly got in there. She's like, wait, am I going to be on camera? And I'm like, don't worry about it. It's good. Don't worry. It's all good. So, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I had to trick her. She was none too pleased. But it's then it fun. turned out okay. It turned out great. Yeah. And, and it's fun to see you guys with your family. Because I know that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, honestly, <laughs> that's, your that's the say. truth. This week, I'm a bachelor from tonight until Sunday. What? Did oh, she what leave you? Did exactly. She leave you? What are we doing? Party! Yeah, she wants to go on vacation to visit uh, her family. Smart in, woman. In uh, Nevada. So I'm Do you want to come to Weeblos with me tonight? Webelos. Webelos. The extinct hey, animal Weeblos. It sounds like a great party with you two. Yeah. Yes. What's uh you guys still doing the show though, right? Of course we are. Anything uh anything Today's juicy. What, what, what? We have West Virginia's head coach on, Dana Holgerson. Oh wow. Why he wants BYU in the big twelve. <gasps> Excellent. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. His boss has some ties to BYU through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. <laughs> oh yes. I knew mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, so he'll be on the show. Yeah, we talk about that. Not to mention James the Mormon, who we've already discussed. Yeah, little rapper. Get into the dynamics of, I'm telling you why. <laughs> and all that. Let it go. Let it go. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. I ain't got no skizzles. <laughs> <laughs> you got skiz, though. <laughs> yeah. No skizzles. Yeah. <laughs> no skizzles. Uh, let's see. What else? Oh, must-win scenario. We're talking about BYU. They're one and two through three games. Is Saturday's game a must-win contextually for them to feel comfortable about making a bowl game in December? Huh. That is a good word. That's a great word. That took skazils. Yeah. And I'll get into the— Because technically it's like, well, no, it's not a must-win, you moron. (laughs) You moron. But it, it would sure help. It's a help win. It's a help win. It would be huge. Mm-hmm. Huge! Okay. That's yeah. a good show, folks. Oh, man. Okay, so you, do you guys feel Do you feel ready? Do you yes. feel pumped? Are you warmed yes. up? Yes. Okay. Do you need to do push-ups still? Still doing them. Okay. 714. A year. That's great. <laughs> that's, be, that's probably pretty accurate. more than I do now. <laughs> that's that's probably pretty what, accurate, yeah, Matt. Yeah. 714 push-ups a year it. for you me. You guys are fit. Fit ah. as fiddles. All right, we'll have a great show. Remember who you are. We what you try. represent? What is that? What is, is that like promise. two a year? Mm-hmm. Two, two push-ups two, a day? Two push-ups a day. For a year. For a year. 714-ish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You could do that. I think I could manage it. You're okay. on it. Okay. Peace out, bros. Later. Knock them, yeah. Dad. That's great. I've decided uh, I, I'm doing a little media thing where they're, they're going to have me to go to a trainer and they're going to video me going to the trainer for three months. Okay. It's the TV's version of, Matt, you're looking chunky, so we have this idea. We're going to have you go to a trainer. So that's supposed to start soon. 
Is this going to be up on BYU Radio? It'll be actually – no. It'll be on KSL, so Salt Lake uh, television station. But I'll post it on my Facebook page. Is this like a local celebrity mm-hmm. lose minus, it? Yeah, minus the celebrity. We're trying to lose – I'm going to see if I can lose my baby weight. Uh, every time my wife had a baby, I gained about five pounds per kid. And I have six kids. So I've gained 30 pounds in sympathy weight. And the neat thing, my wife is lucky because she just, she just has the baby and then feeds the baby and all the weight just disappears. You can do it, Matt. I'm going to do it. I believe in you. Yeah. But I'm going to sure miss Krispy Kreme. Well, I thought you were going to say that you're going to miss your fat, your extra baby fat. I will totally miss my baby fat. But luckily, I'm going to keep it in a jar in the garage. That sounds gross. Does that have a, a long shelf life? Uh-huh. It can last forever. We've talked about it. I mean, a good ball of fat could last thousands of years. Hey, a woman um, cleans out her messy purse, and you won't believe what she finds inside. She pulls out a lotto ticket, and then she found out that the lotto ticket was worth – $157,000. That is one valuable purse. So everybody, start digging in your purse or your man purse, your purse. I'm telling you, you don't know what you're going to find in there. She pulled it out, went to the National Lottery Office in Dublin. Bada boom, bada bing, guess what? $160,000 richer that lady was. It's a big deal. I can't believe she even found it. Have you that. tried to find anything in your wife's purse? No, but I did get a major paper cut when I stuck my hand in there. So I've decided I'm not going near her purse. That was the security system. That was the trap. That was the little gerbil with the sharp teeth that she... It's a trap! It's a trap! Yeah, so check your purse, check your check everything, check your wallet. If you have a, an old lottery ticket, you might want to go make sure that it really didn't pay out for you because there's surprises. That would be a cool surprise. All of a sudden, you've got that much more money. Hmm. I take you know what? If I won one hundred fifty-seven thousand dollars, Jeffrey, I would take you to dinner. I would well, buy you one of those twenty-dollar burritos that you put on your Facebook page. <laughs> Was it a burrito, chimichanga? Yeah, it was – well, the first one was a burrito and then I think I showed you the picture of the three flautas, oh. which is basically three giant deep-fried burritos. Oh, yeah. That's Flau- what it is. We called it flautissimo. Flautissimo. Huge flautas. Although we might have to go to a less uh, high-scale restaurant because you'd only see about 78,000 of that, Dollar. of those winnings. That's true. So we're going to have to set yeah. the bar a little lower. Let's just go. We'll just go get a pizza. We'll have Domino's fly a pizza in with a drone. Hey, as you know. Pizza's here. <laughs> pizza's here. Watch out for the drone. We are going to end the show with a hero story, as we like to do. Check out this. An elite triathlon race in Mexico ended dramatically Sunday with one brother helping another across the finish line. You may have seen the, the video of this. 
At the race of the World Triathlon Series in Cozumel, Mexico, Johnny Brownlee of Britain was leading with less than a half a mile to go when he slowed and staggered over uh, to a water station. His brother Alistair uh, was in a battle for second place with Henry Showman of South Africa, veered over to pull on Johnny's arm, put his arm over his shoulder, and began hauling his brother to the finish line. His brother was down, couldn't do it, couldn't finish it, but the second place brother put his arm around his head, around his neck, basically carried his brother to the finish line, but by doing so, lost the triathlon. Lost the triathlon, but gained the love and affection of his brother. The Brownleys have dominated the sport for years. Alistair, 28, is a two-time defending Olympic champion, and Johnny, 26, won the bronze in 2012 and the silver in 2016. I'm telling you, that's a pretty cool hero story when a brother looks after a brother. That's why we do the stories, so that you can see that there is good in the world. And by the way, it's not just in the family always. Sometimes it's just in you. So our challenge to each of us is to go be better today. Today, let's leave, spend time being the best person we can be. We can't expect you to be any more than that. Look after those that are in need. Be willing to sometimes take second, third in order to uh, put other people first. It's a huge lesson. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll talk tomorrow.